on the internet, it's the Local Host Podcast with Mark Drew and Rob Dudley. Hello from the internet. In this episode, we should be backing up and keeping track of the changes we make by looking at version control. Let's get on with the show. Hello, Rob. Hello, Mark. Welcome back to another glorious recording of the local host podcast see i'm on brand it's an exciting episode this one yeah i mean we have touched on this in quite a few episodes but we've never talked about version control by itself have we no not in its entirety i think we did a whole bunch of stuff on continuous integration and no doubt that will come back around yeah uh, because you can't really talk about one without the other yeah um but yeah we are going to be focused purely on versioning version controls Controlling versions, <laughs> branching, and all, all those lovely topics. But we have, before we get on with this show, even though I just said let's get on with the show, there is an update from our previous episode. So we talked about NoSQL in our previous episode, and we went helpful leather about uh, the cap theorem and and that it didn't you know match with the acid thing, you know. Um, and literally after we recorded the podcast, MongoDB drops acid that's the, that's that's their headline i am not saying it and it's exactly opposite to what they mean so that was a very reachy headline that they had but essentially what they've been doing is they're doing multiple document transactions in, in mongodb so you can store multiple documents at the same time as part of a transaction so they are now acid compliant which is wonderful news for users of mongodb i've not actually read the announcement um, don't know how this is going to impact on performance. You have a transaction. I mean, from the, there's a beta that you can join, and basically is how you you'd use it. How you expect to use transactions? You start a transaction, do your saves, etc., and commit it. Nice, as you would do with uh, any other database. That, that's what it says. I haven't joined the beta yet, but we shall see. Yeah, good stuff, and well done to the MongoDB team for you know continually pushing the envelope. Yeah. Um, and introducing a feature that means that, well, let's face it, one of the the big reasons for not using Mongo in something like an e-commerce platform was you need transactions when you're doing transactions. Yeah, you, know, you need to have that consistency and and contiguity. Yeah, um, it looks like now we might be one step closer to having it. So, bravo, hats off. Yeah, hats off, bravo. Well done. Well Couldn't done. have announced it before we recorded a whole section on on the differences between yeah. NoSQL and ACID compliant relational. Could you? No, thank you. Yeah, but to be fair, <laughs> but to be fair, that by them announcing it uh, afterwards meant that we didn't have to do the complexity with the like. Yes, but MongoDB now has ACID compliant transactions. So. Uh, it kept it fairly clean. I'll, I'll forgive them in, in my magnanimity. <laughs> yeah. Just this time, Mongo, just this time. <laughs> okay, so um, that's our kind of correction, retraction, enhancement out of the way. Cool. Let's get in there. Let's get versioned. Let's get versioned. Like, let, let's do a git in it. Before we get that, let, let, we have to talk, before we talk about version control, let's talk about what we were doing before or I say I don't mean in the midst of time, but if you don't have version control, how do you keep track of changes? And this actually led me down a bit of a rabbit hole, but it comes back to a GIF that I keep on seeing on Twitter, which is of a, a designer's Photoshop file, which is like you know final, really final, 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 final dot PSD, final, 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 final dot PSD. You know, yeah, and. In my travels across code bases in the world, I always see the test file and the copy of the website, which is called backup and the date. And it's literally, you've just grabbed all the files and you've put them all into another folder and that's it. So that's a form of version control, right? You can revert and you're done, right? Yeah, I think in the good old days, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that we said this when we were talking about this last time, um, there was a, a common pattern where, for example, you would make copies of files and put numbers after them or dates, maybe. Right. You take whole zip files or compress the entire project. So you'd kind of have snapshot in time. Tar it. Um, or tar it, yeah, if you're on a, a Unix-based thingy. But there were all sorts of different weird and wonderful versions. There was also, of course, the hilarity that I've seen um, an example of where actually version control was done in the file by commenting out old code. Okay, and really? And leaving it there. Yeah. 
So the old code was commented, and there was a little annotation. It was ridiculous, right? Like a little dot block style annotation saying, this was from this version, it was removed by this person on this date and replaced with this. Wow. Suffice to say, that doesn't work. To be honest, neither really does taking a copy of the folder, because if, well, we'll we'll get on to, to why we version control things. Well, I mean, I think in a moment. the basic premise is, is we're keeping track of history in case we screw up the present, right? It's, it's like a time travel dilemma. It's like, we want, oh no, we screwed it up the present. Can we go back to the past to, to, to fix it? Yeah, so it's the equivalent of, you know, when you wake up the morning after the office party and find 16 copies of your bum that you photocopied the night before <laughs> and you really wish you could go back and just not have that happen. Yeah, and especially if you plastered it on the boss's door. Yeah, so version control allows us to do that. It's also referred to as source control okay, um, or source code control, right? Mm-hmm. So these are kind of two slightly different uh, goals. Version control is the maintenance of versions. Source control is actually just a way to structure, organize, and, and potentially allow access to source code. Right. Without having to email somebody a zip file that contains your entire project or what have you. Yeah. If a new developer comes in, it's like, oh, yeah, you want to make changes. Uh, we all, or, or the ability to, for people to work together. Yeah. So it allows and empowers teamwork in a much more effective way than here's the USB key that contains all of our source code. Or even worse, of like, oh, no, we're developing on the staging on the development server. Can you not change application.cfc because I'm working on it? And uh, you have to shout across the room saying, please don't change that file because it'll get your, your editor automatically refreshes it with somebody else's changes. Yeah, I love that. It's the informal vocal locking system. <laughs> but talking about locking, I, mean, I, I don't know when you started using version control, my first exposure to it was with Visual Source Safe. As was mine. I, th- I think it's a lot of people that I haven't seen, I- I'm going to be wrong and we're going to be tweeted at for being wrong, but I'm sure there's previous version control systems, but that was the biggest one, wasn't it? Microsoft version control system. Visual Source Safe. Yeah, I think it depends on which on which world you were working in. Right. So there were basically two early versions, again, probably millions, but two main players that I'm aware of. There's Visual Source Safe and there's CVS. Right. Now, CVS was, this is broad strokes, don't shout at me. CVS was much more for kind of the the Unixy open source projects. Right. Source Safe was a Microsoft product. It was bundled as part of Visual Studio, I Mm want to say. There was like a snap-in. Yep. Uh, And it came as part of their developer suite. So you're right, it came as part of their developer suite. If you were doing ASP.NET, Visual Basic, any of those two languages at the time, or because C Sharp hadn't been around by then? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, pretty much anything. C Sharp arrived, uh, well, C Sharp arrived with .NET, yeah. right? So, um, but this was actually pre to, pre.NET. This was if you were doing uh, classic ASP or you're doing Visual Basic or, or pretty much any of the, the early, um, early Microsoft things. Right. And uh, so the premise of it was more like a library, right? It was like you have this central repository of code that you could copy to your machine and then you would check out a file. All the files would be read only, right? So you'd have to go make this writable and you could change it, but you can commit it uh, and other people could change it. But then you would check out a file and say, this one's mine or mine. And only I can change it. So it's like a library book being checked out. So any other developer that wanted to make any modifications to the file literally couldn't. Yeah. And we had all these situations that somebody would check out files and go on holiday. And then inevitably there would be, I think there was like a a project leader override style role who could, you could break the lock. Yeah. Um, But it was was a a locking system, a file-based locking system, um, which to be honest... You know, it, it gets a lot of a lot of stick, but it kind of worked. Well, it tells you what's happening uh, across the board, kind of way. Yeah. And if you've got a large number of developers who are all working on the same project, uh, generally speaking, they'd all be in the, in the same place, more or less, because this wasn't, it was networky, but it wasn't really kind of web-ready. Um, so you'd want to run it inside your LAN. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, did the job. Uh, but as you say, the the biggest frustrations were I you know you would need to work on this file and somebody had got it checked out right and either they were there they weren't there either way you couldn't work on that file right because yeah. they were working on it <laughs> and and it, it kind of got in the way I mean it worked all the time until it didn't 
because it was like literally until somebody else was working on that file and you have to like stand around waiting for them to check it in. And this was fine in a lot of senses, but yeah, then you had like some programs where you had a local centralized file like MVC frameworks that had the older ones that had like Fusebox, if you remember Fusebox, that had like one big file where you had all your switches in that, that you kept on going into. Yeah. And everyone kept on going into because, you know, it didn't matter which part you were working on, you you had to work on that. You know, you had to add it there. Yeah. Or, or like the, um, the big, I mean, I, I was doing a lot of web development. I, mean, I still do a lot of web development, but at the time I was doing predominantly web development. So you'd be in and out of like global.css. Right. Or application.js. And this was before we had all of the, the front end tooling. Um, and the odds were good that somebody would inevitably have that damn thing checked out. Yeah. So then comes CVS. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't come along. I'm just talking my personal history because I think CVS was much older than Visual Source Safe. Um, came out about four years prior. Right. So I think Source Safe first release was 94, um, CVS 1990. Right. So yeah, it's got a, a four year head start. And this was much easier. I mean, it was fairly similar, if I recall, but you could actually just be working and, the, and you just had to now merge stuff together. Right. Yeah, this is where I just let you talk because, shock horror, <laughs> you didn't use it. I never used CVS. Well, I used it for a brief period of time. I don't have that many recollections apart from bad ones about merging because Subversion kind of overtook it pretty quickly. Yeah. I say pretty quickly in my development life lifespan, I've got to say. So there was a whole bunch of problems with CVS that you couldn't check in like empty folders. I think a lot of happens with a lot of other stuff, but... Um, and it had problems with branching. Branches were like very literal copies of everything, if I recall correctly. Um, Subversion was much easier to do all of this, and it thinks the merging model was faster. Mm-hmm. So again, another uh, uh, and Subversion was meant to subvert CVS, right? It was meant to be like a better model of of CVS. Yeah, and it allowed you to do branches much better. I might be wrong about the branches. I think branches. I'm getting. Subversion and CVS mixed up because one replaced the other fairly quickly in my head. Um, and yeah, and but all of these had one thing in common, if I recall correctly, is that they're all like these are like centralized version control systems. So they had like the 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 master server that you would set up, right, which would be your 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 Visual Source Safe server or your CVS server, which might be in SourceForge or something like that. Or you'd have subversion, you'd have your subversion server with track installed next to it. Do you remember track, the the, the project manager? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, subversion, I, well, to give it its proper title now, I think it's Apache subversion, isn't it? I'm not sure. It's been accepted into the Apache family. Has it? Yes. I don't remember it. When I used it, it wasn't when we used it. When when we used it, it was still. I mean, it it, it was open source, but it's I think since been handed over. Yeah. Um. And yeah, there was a uh, subversion was basically the go to versioning tool for an awful lot of larger community systems. Mm-hmm. So SourceForge moved over to it. Yeah. I think Google Code was based on it. Yeah. Google Code was subversion. Yeah. And all of these things. Again, kind of predate stuff like, um, well, we'll get into it, but they predate things like GitHub yep. um, and, and Bitbucket. Um, but yeah, you're right. They were completely centralized. So you had to set up this server. You set up network access to the server. Subversion was actually much better at doing external network access because I think it would allow you to connect over, like it had its own protocol, but you could also connect over SSH. Right. And I think HTTP... Yeah, it had a, a weird kind of web dev bastardization. Right. Um, it wasn't web dev, but yeah. So it was much easier to for you to set up stuff mm-hmm. on the web and on, on things without having to open up strange ports like you had with Visual Source Safe. And of course, these are the same rise in, in the remote working so or, or distributed development and things like that. The one thing that I do remember about Subversion that was annoying was like trying to code on a plane. Like if you wanted to do a different branch of code, just so you had to do the branches on the server. Yep. Um, so, you know, if you didn't have network access, did not have access to the server, all your commits were done to the server, right? You didn't do like changes and then bundle them up. It's like your checkout and anytime you committed, that was sent to the server. Yeah. So, so the server was keeping track of stuff rather than anything on your machine. 
I mean, yeah, basically. Um, and in some ways, it was kind of useful because it meant that your machine was totally disposable and the server was a central source of truth and blah, blah, blah. Um, but it did mean that, yeah, for whatever reason, your link to that server went down or the server went down, yeah. um, then you were pretty much up the creek without a version control system. <laughs> and then, like, and, and hear trumpets and the voices of angels singing in the background comes Git which is the distributed version of that. It's, uh, yeah. It's also a fairly major um, step change in, in how to approach software versioning, I think. Um, there was a, yeah, Subversion was kind of a continuation of what CBS had done. Right. And actually introduced a whole bunch of really nice features, but it wasn't massively different. It was just better. Yeah. Whereas Git, um, introduced, of course, uh, by um, everybody's favorite open source project leader, Mr. Linus Torvalds, who allegedly claimed in an interview, this this might be complete nonsense, right. um, but he said, why did you call it Git? And he said, well, I have a habit of naming software projects after myself. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, so, uh, I mean, uh, most of our listeners are probably aware of this, but uh, Linus obviously maintains the Linux kernel, which is one of the, if not the biggest, distributed open source projects in the world with thousands of developers and, and hundreds of thousands of files. And he needed something that was better than the current systems that were available, um, and he needed something that was better than, say, for example, getting diffs via email. Oh, God, I, I've completely forgotten about that. I would get diff files, and you just apply it to your version control, and that's how you kept all kept in sync before you, uh, before you committed. Wow, yeah. I mean, not to, to dive too deeply into the history, but there, it was actually it's not based on, but it took a lot of features or is similar in, in a lot of features to a system called BitKeeper okay. that was a proprietary source control uh, management system that was used uh, prior to Git. But because it was proprietary, um, I'm not exactly sure whether or not they fell out or whether or not he just decided to rewrite it. Mm. What's really interesting is that if you if you go back through the design process for Git, he actually decided to take CVS as um, an example of how not to do it. <laughs> so if he, if he needed to make a decision, it's like, what would CVS do? Do the opposite. <laughs> okay. Right, so that's one way to do it. Like, let's not learn anything. Let's let's just try and avoid all of that. So, if people aren't using Git, or oh, it's a good way to start because you're able to do it locally. I mean, not because it's simple, because it isn't. But there's some nice tools for it. But you can just do the the, the Git in it, and you have a repository on your machine that is a repository. It's the same as having a Git server, but you can lo- work locally. You don't need to be connected to anything, and you are cracking versions. Sure, you don't have the, it's not a backup, so if your machine goes, you know, that disappears. But it means that you are tracking versions on your machine from the get-go, right? You can build a whole project of multiple iterations, multiple releases on your machine and go back and go forward and do anything you would do with, with a subversion server, right? Yeah, totally. It is very, very simple to get started with. And as you say, you can basically, all of those projects that... Well, let's put it this way. Almost any developer out there would have started something as potentially a little hack or a little script to, to get them over a, a hurdle. And the next thing you know, three months goes by, and that is now a fully-fledged application. Um, and there's a whole bunch of change history and, and stuff that was lost because there, there just wasn't a point when it was like, this is a project now and it needs to have project-style tooling. Um and Git is really lightweight. It's really easy to just start a repository, start tracking those changes, and start getting version history and being able to not only roll back to previous versions, but also see the journey of that piece of software as it was developed. Right. And it also brings other nice features, which I was mentioning about Subversion, that if you're working as part of a team, you might want to try and try out a little feature but keep it in version control because it's not you're going to try a little feature over multiple days, right? So it might be a, a branch, as we've talked before, of, of code that you want to develop, but you don't want to bother anybody else about it. So you can, they're very cheap, right? So you can just create your branch and 
and do your testing. Yeah, and and that's something that uh, again you you think back to the copy where you'd you'd copy uh, you'd copy a file and then you'd be like, oh, I have to back this up. So you make a copy and call it you know application.cfc.original. Right. Yeah. Um, just in case what you're about to do is going to screw some stuff up. Yeah. Um, with Git, you're empowered to make potentially breaking changes to the project because branching allows you to do it in complete isolation from the main project itself, from other developers, mm-hmm. um, and they're totally disposable they're really quick to make and if it works great you can then use that branch and bring it back or merge it back into the main project if it turns out that actually it was a bit of a dead end fine you just leave the branch kill it um no harm no foul right right and you can keep on keep that track of all of that and see all the merges that are happening and then you have this idea of a remote so okay so you've done all your changes on your machine and stuff like that and i want to invite Rob to come and join my little project. I can either do it via a centralized server such as GitHub, or I can literally copy the folder to him, and he now has all the versions because it's that that invisible .dot git um, <laughs> folder that that will be ever present. That I can then copy the folder, give it to Rob, and now he has a version control of it, right, or a version of it. Yeah. Um, and the nice thing is, we're still working off the same the same central kind of code, but we can be doing our own branches. We've been doing our own stuff, mm. and it gives us a lot of flexibility in terms of how we want to work with our code. It also includes a massive amount of power that I think we'll talk about in a, in, in a little while. Mm. But fundamentally, it's that flexibility and the freedom is what you want from a tool because fundamentally, as developers, we want to spend our time writing software, not managing our code. Exactly. Um, um, there might be arguments against that, against that, because you do end up managing some of the code when you're doing like merges between branches and things like that. But we'll, we'll get onto that. Um, so similar to Git is Mercurial. I haven't used Mercurial, but this was by Atlassian. Or am, am I there? No. Um, Mercurial is uh, by a developer called Matt McCull. Oh, it's actually totally sl- slightly older by I think like two three months than Git. It came out in in the same year. Um, and by and large, was designed to solve a lot of the same problems. Okay. So he, uh, the the developer McCall, st- decided to start this project um, as a replacement again for Bitkeeper, but unfortunately, uh, you know, Linus being Linus, decided he was going to write his own. Um, Mercurial is used by a lot of projects. And by and large, Git v Mercurial is one of those things. It's like Vim versus Emacs or Tabs versus Spaces. Right. It's a bit of a holy war. They're very, very, very similar in how they actually approach operating with, with source code and, and managing it. I'm sure they're very different under the hood. I've not used Mercurial in, in any massive degree. Again, I think there were a couple of the code uh, repository sites like Google Code that used it as an option. Because I think Google Code was subversion or Mercurial for a while. Right. So instead of being Git on SVN. Yeah. Um, I, I could be wrong there. But yeah, so it, it's it's very similar in the way that it works. It's quite cool in that the command line for Mercurial is HG. <laughs> well, it's the chemical symbol for Mercury. Oh. Sorry to <laughs> yeah, I totally lit that up before we started. It, it's an early, early Saturday morning <laughs> here. Um, my my periodic table is not on my wall today. Um, no, no, that's good. Uh, I like that uh, compared to writing Git because all the time we're just saying Git this, Git that. Yeah, I think that one of the the I mean, again, my opinion. I use Git because it's what everybody else uses, mm-hmm. but. By and large, one of the things that Git does incredibly well is application of the Unix philosophy. So Git is actually, um, it's not just one tool, it's a framework of different tools that let you do different things. Right. And these are all kind of bound up in this like Git namespace of a command. And the idea that you can have, for example, a diff file and um, a patch generator, but they aren't all part of the same thing. They are all actually slightly separate. It's something that appeals to me. Mm-hmm. If only because it's the way that you know the the Unix philosophy of do one thing and do it well, right? Um, so yeah. Anyway, Git Mercurial by and large equivalent. I've not massively used Mercurial, I'm afraid. No, me neither. And the, and the other one that we should mention is Perforce, which I've come into contact with from from when doing game development because you are using much larger files and it's designed for large file version control. Okay. 
I think now they have a something called Helix, which is again I've not used it. Um, yeah, Helix I think is taking off a lot of stuff from Git, uh, and I think it is using Git, but it's more designed for for bigger um, files, and it's commercial compared to Git and GitHub, for example. So this is proprietary license software, yeah. Yeah, I think it's free for up to five people. Uh, that Ooh. kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But there is other software out there, right? Other software is available. Yeah. And I think the the one thing that we've been very lucky in um, the software development space, because these tools are fundamentally quite difficult to write, and certainly to, to write well and maintain, um, and, and, and having not one but two brilliant open source options kind of detracts from the fact that actually if you want to sit down and write a version control system tomorrow, you're going to be doing some fairly serious heavy lifting in code. Yeah. You know, just building these things out and making them workable and introducing all the features that the community has now come to expect is fairly tough. So I will forgive proprietary version control systems <laughs> as I sit under my open source yeah, flag. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, at the end wearing of wearing my my EFF baseball cap, as you say, like Bitkeeper, you know, was copied by GitHub, so maybe that they had something on there, you know. Yeah. Now, one of the good things about Git and this distributed model, which I think we should just touch on a little bit is that the fact that you can have a server github being the most famous one i think mm-hmm. but there's this or gitlab is the is a kind of like self-hosted right um but you don't have to so this doesn't you know like if github is down it's okay because it's going to be either your version or somebody else's version is out there with a full history and we're not talking just about like here's the latest code we're fine it's more like, well, we've got all of the the code. We can keep on going with it. It's not like, oh, crap, we can't roll back. Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, frequently, uh, it's almost become a bit of a meme, to be honest, because GitHub is an amazing service. But like any large um, SaaS product, they do suffer downtime. Yeah. And I am not going to lie, it drives me absolutely batty. When I'm sat there and on Twitter, it's like, oh, well, GitHub's down. The development team are just going to down tools. Why? which bit of a distributed version control system are you not getting? And by and large, it's not that they don't get it, it's that they have placed their remote in a critical point in their development process. Gotcha. Um, And this will often come into play, for example, if you're doing um, CI or or similar. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you need this this central server, but by and large, it's... You know, GitHub not being there should never get in the way of a Git-based workflow. That's my not in the least bit humble opinion. <laughs> um, if it does... Sure, but I mean, part of CI is you're going to need to have a centralized server. Now, that centralized server is just an endpoint that, in theory, you could spin a new one up. Well, you don't even need to spin a new one up because one of the nice things that Git lets you do is you don't, you're not limited to uh, the subversion model of one server or one remote. You can have multiple. Right. It's 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 baked right into the to the basic tool. You can say, well, this is my GitHub remote, this is my my um, Bitbucket remote, and this is my CI remote, and you can actually script it very easily so that a commit and a push to one will replicate across all three. Right. You know, it's 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 been designed to do this. And and so if it, yeah yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's right in the box. It's in there for you to use. Yeah. And I think the it it actually is telling because a lot of people when they get started um, with uh, Git, especially if they came from Subversion, tend to use Git as a weird version of Subversion. Oh, right. They have this thing in their minds that it has to be central and I must push everything back to the server. And actually, you know, you need to spend a bit of time to understand that this whole distributed thing is a real game changer and it's it's a major shift in thinking. And you need to, to make sure that you've understood what that means and how you, it benefits you to get the most out of the tool. Yeah, I mean, and this is the thing about centralized things is is a few years ago, the competitor to Git and SVN was Codespaces, right? And they had to close their doors because they weren't down and everyone was depending on them, especially the SVN folk, because that was literally their source of truth, right? What I mean, source of truth is like, you know, here's all the versions that they had there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had to close their doors because they had a, well, it started out with a distributed denial of service attack that then led to them trying to get their backups from AWS. And they had only used one account to log in. 
Yes, so... So they had everything hosted in AWS? I think that this was a a cascade failure, right? Yeah. (laughs) I think is the term. Well, it's a targeted attack. So you do, like, attack on one side with a DDoS, and on the other, they they were asked for ransom to get back to their systems, and as they managed to get back into AWS, so did the hacker, and started deleting all their EBS volumes, so, like, all their backups. Mm -hmm. A nightmare scenario... And this is where, you know, you should have two-factor authentication. And I think we'll touch this on a later podcast on security. But basically everything that they had got deleted. Any of their backups got deleted because it was all in AWS, all in one system, all under one password. Yeah. And they were down. And as you say, for the, I mean, they were a subversion and Git hosting provider. So similar to, to GitHub or or. or SourceForge or whatever, um, for the subversion guys, this would have been a disaster because, fair enough, they might have been backing their code up, but actually for a lot of devs, using remote version control is your backup. Yeah. Um, so there's lessons for us as devs here when we're using these centralized um, or, or third-party providers, which is is great because, let's face it, building our own servers to run subversion is, is costly, expensive. We have to back it up, maintain it. Right. But you need to be aware of just how much trust you're placing in that third party. A good example is like uh, this laptop that I'm recording on now has been fixed. And I said to the guys, no, it's fine. You can just wipe it. Yep. It's like, it's fine. Wipe it. I have everything in version control. It's, 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 it's going to take me a little while to to build up, to add the software. And there's a website that I might have to put a link in there that actually, if you're a Mac user, you can go there, select the software that you want, development software like, Cyberduck Sublime, and it gives you a curl command to go and install it all. So you can just do it all at once. So that saves you a lot. Which, of course, you read before running, right? <laughs> yes, of course you do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm exactly the same. My my source code, if my laptop were to blow up right now, um, it would be inconvenient because I'm using it to record this podcast. Um, <laughs> but I would not lose any code that matters. Right. It, it might be like a days code at most but even then i push all my stuff up so we should say a bit a little bit about the the process of, of git versus subversion uh with subversion you uh, make some changes to some code and when you commit it that commit goes to the server mm-hmm. right yeah when you're using git uh, i make some changes to some code commit it and that's committed locally make some more changes commit it commit it locally i can make multiple changes and then once i'm done doing all those changes and all those commits because i can have different comments with each of those commits i can then push all of that to a remote server and when i say a remote service because you can have multiple remotes yeah right in, in its simplest form that's that's how it works i mean I have, um, I don't know if it's good practice or not, but I do actually have a small a small bash script um, that I kind of alias, which basically does a git add, git commit, and a git push in one hit. Right. Because realistically, most of the stuff that I'm working on, I want to make sure that there is a copy held somewhere else. Mm-hmm. If only because potentially, uh, you know, even if it's branched or, or hack about, this idea that my laptop can be transient or my workstation can be can be disposable is quite important to me, if only because I've been burnt in the past when when stuff isn't. Yeah. And by and large, there's no real downside to doing it, apart from a slight slowdown, because if you're pushing to a remote server, it can take a little bit longer, like, you know, a half a second, a second, depending on, on what kind of internet connection you're on and how much you're actually pushing and having to transmit over the network. Sure. But by and large, I do it all in one hit. It's fairly quick, yeah. Because most of the stuff that we'd we'd be doing would be uh, committing is small changes in code, and it's not sending out all the files again. It's just sending the changes, the differences between those files, right? Yeah. So this is a key tenet of how modern version control systems have worked, you know, since way back when, which is that they don't actually store copies because that would be really wasteful. They store deltas or differences. Um, and likewise with Git, what we're basically doing is sending those changes. So it's it's really really efficient. Um, we get these tiny tiny little nuggets of lines of stuff. Where you will occasionally, um, I suppose, get a little bit stuck is if you're working on something that has a lot of large binary objects, right? So images or video or what have you. Um, but there are ways around that. And also, 
if you have a project that, say, for example, is is running a build system that changes all of your your style sheets and 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 builds all of your JavaScript files and what have you, uh, again, there are ways around that. There are a couple of best practice ways to ensure that your Git commits stay nice and small and manageable. Okay. Well, this is things like, um, say, for example, in uh, the world of uh, PHP, is a good one. Um, because PHP's package manager composer mm-hmm. creates a directory in your project called vendor okay. by default. But this is, is this like the node modules type thing? Yeah, or? so uh, sorry, yeah, node would have been a, an even better example, actually. Sorry, brain fart early on Saturday morning. <laughs> um, but yeah, node, PHP, they both create this folder inside the root of your project. Mm-hmm. So if you've got that project under version control and uh, you haven't uh, explicitly ignored that folder, you're going to be pushing the contents of that folder up every time it changes. Yeah. And that folder can be freaking huge, right? Right. It's downloaded the internet. Uh, that's not a dig at Node, although it does download half the internet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, they're massive, especially if you're in a development environment, then you might have things like, you know, headless Chrome in there. You've got all Phantom JS or whatever we're using nowadays, mm-hmm. um, you know, to run all of your, your functional testing. You've got megabytes and megabytes and megabytes of stuff all of which is completely transient because all you actually need is your your package.json or your your lock file um so version that that file but don't actually version the libraries and you know you can save yourself megabytes worth of upload so that's a fairly rambling sidebar <laughs> it's fine but i mean so the one thing that i think git doesn't do well out of the box so to speak is handling Massive files, right? I mean, this is what Perforce was kind of designed for. I've, I've had this recent argument. Like, for example, we're coders, so all we care about is .php files, .js files, .cfm files, which are basically little text files, right? Yeah, and because we're good coders, we have lots of small text files. Right. Basically, they're, they're kind of ASCII or UTF or whatever, but they're, that's what Git was built to work with. Mm-hmm. It was built to work with a C, or I think it's C, yeah. Linux is written in C, right? Um, a, a C code base, hundreds of thousands, millions of small text-based files, and it's brilliant at doing that. You're quite right. It's not good at working with a 500-megabyte Photoshop file. Right, and keeping track of changes to that Photoshop file. So final, final, final. Final, final, final. Yeah, I mean, it will do it, but what you lose is the ability to do this deltering right. uh, to a degree. It just has to take a whole copy of the file because it's binary. It can't say that this line changed or that this character was removed from this line. It just has to be like, well, uh, that file's changed. Here we go. Here's another copy of it. Um, a gross simplification. There are some optimizations, but yeah, fundamentally, it kind of sucks at it. Right, so, the, so there's extensions for this, though, but because you can then start saying to... Because it it doesn't handle binary files very well, but you can add something called uh, what LFS, large file system, to it, which means it kind of ignores the tracking of binary files. Is that what it does? It basically allows you to submit them, but it doesn't create all the crud around them that um, would have to. Right. So, I mean, the first uh, the first key point is that yeah, Git is extensible, yeah, and there are all sorts of extensions for it that add additional functionality. Now, uh, the one that we're talking about here is large file storage, which it doesn't remove any kind of safety or versioning. I believe what it does is it actually removes the file itself from the core, like Git data storage, and puts it somewhere more suitable. Okay. I think. Yeah, I mean, whatever happens underneath the the covers is, is, is voodoo that Git do. Yeah. So it's basically rather than having, you know, a 50 megabyte Photoshop assets.psd file in your main code repository, you will have a tiny little pointer, which is almost like a symlink or similar, mm-hmm. uh, a reference, a cloakroom ticket um, that says the 50 meg PSD file is actually stored here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also maintains versions and all the rest of it. It just means that your actual Git repository is not getting full of all of this binary data that it's not great at handling. Yeah. That was a great improvement. So you basically just map which files you're not going to be keeping track of or you're not going to keep versions of, mm-hmm. and you want LFS to manage. So you you just do a Git LFS file. I can't remember the name of it. It's, a- it's Git LFS track. 
um, assume you've installed it. So you need to, to make sure you've installed it and then get LFS install will initialize it across the system and then yeah get lfs track and you can pass it like a, a file glob or a wildcard mm. so you can say get lfs track star dot psd or bmp yep and that's it um it will then kind of handle it basically which is quite nice but it's a bit of an annoying for designers because this is literally who are going to be doing it right these are the people that need to have access to that but once you set it up, it's done. They can check out your repo. They can add new stuff to it and just commit stuff, and it's all fine. Mm-hmm. One final thing on GitLFS, you do need to ensure that your remote supports it. Ah, that's true. And basically... Because GitHub does, right? So GitHub does, yep, totally. GitHub.com uh, and their enterprise solution. Bitbucket does. If you're using something that's a bit weird or you've decided to roll your own Git remote, then you might need to actually do a bit of research on the on the remote side. I'm not going to say the server side, the remote side. Right. Uh, to make sure that you've got support. I just did a quick look about Git LFS as well. Um, no, GitLab uh, as well supports uh, LFS. Yeah. I mean, it's it's more or less a, a standard expected feature of Git nowadays, but just a little bit of caveat emptor. Yeah. We have other extensions for Git, of course. Yeah, I mean the the interesting one. Got, I mean, there's loads, is, but this is this is one of my favourites. Gone. I'll let you. I'll let you do it. All right. Okay. It's your favourite. Oh, <laughs> geeks at the at the keyboard here. Um, is Git Flow right? Yeah. By Vincent Dreisen or Dreisen, but from the MV Labs, mm-hmm. which I think really changed the way I work in the flow, and I, I think it has been a, a massive impact. In the workflow of development, right? I think because it touches on so many important parts of, of, you know, from coding to deployment, that it kind of solved it in a way that you can just use it, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the way that I look at it is because Git is really flexible and it's really unopinionated as well. Right. Um, it will stay out of your way. It's really, you know, as we've said, lightweight to get going, but it doesn't offer much in the way of a structure or a system. Yeah. Git flow is almost the total opposite of that. It enforces a way of working with Git branches, mm-hmm. which just so happens to be probably one of the best ways of working with Git branches. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's that missing piece. It's I think it codifies yeah. it because yeah. even before I learned about Git flow, we kind of had this idea that you'd have a master branch, which is by default. Mm-hmm. You'd have like this is where all your code's going, right? And then you can create another branch. And most people did a development branch. Yep. And you just code all your stuff in development and then put it to master and masters where you deployed. So that was kind of how you how you do it. This took that idea, uh, or those conventions, I should say, to the next level and allow you to have the idea of having a master branch. You know, this is your latest bit of code. This is the assured code. This is a code that you're happy with that might go into production. And generally, the master branch is what goes into production. Yeah. Then you have a develop branch, not development, but a develop branch, which is where all your new features merge into, I would say. Yeah, so... Is that a better way to, to define it? If master is what's currently in production, develop is building towards what is next going to be in production. Right. So it's the next version. Now, the problem that always comes out of this, which has happened to all of us, I, I want someone to phone in and say that they haven't had this, but that you have a problem on the live server that you have to fix right now. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you can't go into your development branch because maybe it hasn't passed QA, hasn't, you know, code that hasn't done that. And the fixes that you need to do to the live server are what are called hot fixes, right? They're, so you have this idea of a hot fix branch, which is an immediate fix that the code is it would be one line of code or something, right? It would be like, we have to fix this now. Yeah, it can be big, but the key thing is that it allows you to basically make changes to your master branch or your live production code state without risking polluting it with your untested develop code, which is what you said. Mm -hmm. And it, it basically wraps it up in a nice little package. It also means that that fix then actually gets pulled back into your develop branch so you avoid a regression. Right. So, you know, you fix it on, and we've, I'm sure everybody's done this, maybe not everybody, but you make a fix, you push it up to the production site, you know, phew, right, back to work. Two weeks later, you do the next release or a week later. And as it goes out, you realize, oh, 
pants I didn't pull that fix into my working code. So I've just broken my application in exactly the same way again. Yeah. What an idiot. And then I'm gonna have to try and find that code. So yeah, so you then start playing around with with check-ins and trying to find out yeah. the differences between files and stuff. Um I mean there's uh, Gitfo basically takes all of the situations that developers would run into using a branching version control system and provide you with a pattern and a set of steps for handling it. Yeah. That's fundamentally what it does. And it does it in a nice, easy to use. There's there's kind of a, an additional command, right? So rather than just git commit, there's git flow start feature or feature start. Yeah. And feature finish, which is quite nice. I like using that one. Yeah. And it also... Because the feature finish... So essentially when you create a feature... Sorry to interject, Mr. No, no. Is when you create a feature, it actually creates a branch called features slash whatever the name of your branch is, right? So you then work away at your feature... And it's kind of nice because it keeps it out of the way. You have different folders in your branches now that you can see, like, here's all my features that people are working on. And importantly, when you finish it, it it asks you, do you want to delete this branch? Which I kind of like because it means that you're done. That branch has disappeared. You don't pollute your, you know, your repository with hundreds of dead branches, branches that have been merged and now are just sitting there taking up space. Nicely tidied up and, and removed. Um, of course, this being Git, the, you can always get it back if you need to. Right. In theory, nothing is ever lost. Of course, you can check out from that revision. You see, you can see where it's coming from. But yeah, so um, the idea of, of feature branching is something that, again, it isn't new. It wasn't invented by Gitflow. It's just packaged in a brilliant way. And this is the true core Git workflow, right? We work on a feature. I'll be working on my feature. You're working on your feature. You might ask me to have a look at your feature so I can just commit mine, check out yours. Right. My code is completely safe. There's no cross-pollination or, or risk of, of leakage. And then when we're done, they both go back into develop, which means that any conflicts that we might have created, you know, we've both changed application.cfc. And those are then managed at that point. And it'll be, you know, up to, to well, either you or me, depending on who, who commits and, and finishes last, to deal with those conflicts. But it, it really does allow and force a proper way of working with Git for uh, distributed teams. And to be honest, it's kind of cool if you're just working on your own. Yeah, no, because it gives you that certainty that like, okay, so I'm going to start this feature. Oh, I've got an idea for this other feature. You can switch out and not get like crossing streams of code, so to speak, mm-hmm. like unfinished bits of code. Don't cross the streams. And don't cross the streams. Yeah, so it keeps everything clean and tidy. It also avoids a couple of, of newbie Git problems uh, that I see a lot with the uh, coding course that I kind of mentor at. We introduce Git fairly early on because we want them to get using it. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, it's it's fantastic. It's the one bit of the course that the students always struggle with. Yeah because they're constantly committing against the same master branch and they're bouncing off each other and what have you. And the minute we get them to start using either Gitflow or just feature branches, but we normally encourage the use of Gitflow, you can see it's like a light bulb goes on. It's like, oh, so I'm working on my copy and, and he's working on his copy. And, oh, great, so we can work on the same thing. How does that work? At which point we say it's just black magic. Yep. But <laughs> no need for details. It's the best way to get a team on it. So how do you start them out? Do you start them out on like command line or do you give them some tools or? Um, We start them out on command line, if only because part of the course is also just building confidence and comfort with using a command line interface. That's good. It's an open source web development course, so they're going to run into it. Yeah. And also, by and large, I like using, you know, good GUI tools, Mm -hmm. but there can be a lot of noise. Mm -hmm. And... Realistically, you can actually run Git day-to-day with probably like five commands. Yeah. Having all of those buttons and switches and and drop-downs and what have you can be really quite distracting, quite daunting if you're getting started out. And, you know, the good GUIs are power tools. Yeah. Normally, what we'll find is that actually, if they struggle with the command line element, we we can say, well, actually, here is either the github.com client or here is source tree or here is Kraken. There's another one, Tower, isn't it? Uh, yes. Yes, there is. I think I've it. not used Tower because I think it's Mac specific, isn't it, Tower? Uh, might be, yeah. Yeah. But by and large, I would always encourage them and, and do to, to get started with the command line. It introduces good terminal discipline, good shell discipline. I mean, from my perspective, by and large, when do I reach for a GUI? Because I do. I, I normally have Source Tree installed on my Mac. Source Tree has been a game changer. I didn't get on well with the GitHub client because it's also like just this is just a GitHub client. But Source Tree, I kind of love it. 
But I think I use it to look down versions and what people have been committing because doing a Git log to give you a list of all the changes mm -hmm. is not as pretty as just like having a, a table that shows you who's been committing what. Yeah, and it's the it's the convenient plumbing as well. So you can see who's been committing what, but then you can actually kind of right click on that. And rather than having to remember the commit ID yeah, uh, and then type it into your terminal, you can actually just say, yeah, check out at this commit. So it kind of does a bit of auto wiring. Mm -hmm. One of the best things, I, well, one of the main things I use Horsetree for is if I get into a really nasty merge conflict. Yeah. Uh, which is normally an inherited project, and you're like, okay, wow, this is this is in bad shape, and you're trying to apply a bit of tidiness and structure to it, then actually using that as just a visual representation of which files are which, and using a visual diff tool, I find a lot easier than just doing from the terminal. Yeah, we're just looking at diffs, right? Yeah. The other thing that I really like about SourceTree is it will actually tell you what it's doing. Hopefully, we are going to have um, a follow-up episode to this, where we're going to be chatting to the developer behind SourceTree. There you go, spoiler alert, that's coming. But one of the things that I really love is that when you're actually running the command, you can normally expand and you can see that it's actually calling git dash commit dash da 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 da. Right. You, know, you can see all the flags and it really uses flags. You know, there's yeah. the, the, this is not your simple git add. It uses all of the pig. <laughs> I think, to be honest, that it's probably being very specific in what it's doing, and it might be using defaults. That's one feature out of a lot of clients that I love, like SQL clients as well, and NoSQL clients, that you can pull up a console and see what the commands is doing. Like, for example, like adding users in, in MySQL, I, I don't do it all the time. I sometimes forget about it. So when I change the permissions or something like that for a user, it comes up with, here's all the command. I go, oh, great. Now I can, mm -hmm. I can put that into my build script or something like that. Yep. But yeah, that in source tree is fantastic. And you're right, it uses all the switches <laughs> in terms of tooling as i say other clients are available um i use horsetree i've used kraken there's there's all sorts of different options out there but i would encourage you know a user to get familiar with the the command line first if they're just starting out uh, it might seem a bit daunting but actually mm -hmm. it's probably the best way to go uh, initially and you should do anyway because there's so many is something that i think until a good gui appears for every single tool and I'm talking about a good GUI. I've got other GUIs that I'm not going to point a finger at. Um, <laughs> P4V, Perforce Client. <clears throat> um, you need to make a really good GUI. And this is where SourceTree did shine because it was, or it is, I should say, pretty good client in that it, it shows you the options and it, you know, does it the job well. I can't say that for every other interface nope. to command line tools. No, yeah. this is definitely, it's one of the better examples. So, yeah. As well as clients, of course, you know, the, the business of doing business and the tooling surrounding it. We've also got a whole bunch of additional features that Git brings to the party, which allow us to start building probably more complex workflows and integrating version control in our development lifecycle than we previously would have done. Right. Which is like what? Uh, hooks. And yeah, so hooks are the initial example, and these are basically they're like events in the Git lifecycle mm -hmm. that you can hook code onto. Right. I've used this in Command Box, which is a command line tool utility, a wonderful tool for Core Fusion that you can actually put code that you run before a commit, mm -hmm. for example. So you have a pre-commit hook. So you're going to go like, oh, I'm going to commit my code. But you can say, ah, actually, I want to lint everything before I commit, yep. as an example. And not potentially allow that commit if the linting is is failed. Right. It's failed? Wow, English. Um, you know, there were a couple of other things that we used to do, which was to run, you know, linting and coding standard checks. So in the Python world, you'd run like a PEP8 check. Right. And developers are running their, these tools in their um, IDE or their editor anyway. But let's face it, sometimes developers are a bit crafty and they want to finish and go to the pub. Yep. So they just commit it anyway, knowing that it doesn't meet the coding standards. A pre-commit hook can run the same checks, can catch it and kick it back and say, no, that's not good enough. That's not ready or that's not what we want. The big pre-commit, and I don't know actually whether or not you do this pre-commit, is you know kicking off like CI jobs. You can do that pre or post. Right. Probably normally you'd run it post, so you do the lint and the check up front, and if all of that's clean, then you kick off CI. Yeah. Um, so this is unit tests, yeah. this is building your project and all of that good stuff, right? Creating a Docker container image of it. Yeah, yeah. 
Containers everywhere. Containers everywhere. This is the important part. That I mean, SVN had pre-commit and post-commit hooks, but they were on the server. They weren't on your machine. So what would happen is it will kick off the testing, for example, but then this would be on your big server, chunky server somewhere. But this means that your own machine can be doing all of this. I think that's the important part, yeah. that you can distribute all of this. So it can either be your own machine, it can be your other machine. So do you have any tips for working with Git? I do, although kind of one of them we've already talked about. So my first, my first Git tip is... Again, this is something that you see with new developers or new to Git developers. They get really precious about how many branches they've got because they seem to think that they're either going to clutter up their mm. Git repository or some other horrible performance do anything. Remember with Git, branches are cheap. They're, they're dirt cheap, yeah. so use them. Use loads of them, tens of them, hundreds of them. Yeah. You know, all of your different features, all your different ideas, they're... If you ever find yourself in a position where you think, oh, I've just cross-pollinated this code with that code because you didn't use a branch, you're using Git wrong. Right. Branch all the things. Yeah, yeah. There we go. Branch all the things. <laughs> that's, that's my Git tip numero uno. Okay, awesome. Um, I think I've got I've got a Git tip, which is to have multiple repos, as we said, that you can be pushing to to different things. I've done this for some clients, so I like to have a backup on Bitbucket as well as putting on GitHub. So I have like two repositories. So is this when you say repos, you mean remotes? Yeah, remotes. Yeah, so yep. multiple remotes per project. Yep, that's right. Um, th- this makes it your backup. You know, as we said, like GitHub is down, is not going to be a problem because oh, we'll keep on pushing it to Bitbucket or something. I totally agree with that. And don't be afraid to kind of spread this stuff out. My second tip is not really a tip. It's more of a, a kind of a thing to avoid from experience. And this is you nearly, you almost never, ever need to use Git rebase. Okay. What does Git rebase do? So, and why should ah, um. Git rebase, in theory, if I got this right, it will basically play all of the changes from one branch onto another branch. So effectively, it gives you the option to do like a back merge. Okay, so basically then then you get like one... So like instead of having all the different commits that you had in your branch, you then do one... It, it looks like there's only been one change made, right? Not quite. What it does is it takes, so say, for example, the most common use for this, as in misuse for this that I've seen, is where you're working on a feature branch and you've been working on it for a while and you realize that your branch and develop have gotten massively out of sync. Work has continued on develop and your branch is now way out there. Mm -hmm. So you want to get your branch a bit more up to date with develop so that when you actually finish your feature, it's easier to merge back in. Mm -hmm. Now, if you were to rebase develop onto your branch, it will take every single commit and play it onto your branch kind of behind the current head. Oh, I see. Right. This is a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah. Because every single one of those changes, if you get a conflict at stage one, you will have to deal with that conflict for every commit. (sighs) And it's the kind of thing that, to be honest, rebase has a purpose. It is really, really, really occasional. What you actually want to do is merge. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I do. I mean, I just go and get develop branch, uh, continually merge it into my feature branch if yep. my feature has been going on for a while, right? Yeah. So I've kind of banged on about this, but it's it's a common thing that people, um, again, it's a new to get thing. They're like, well, I can only merge into develop. No, you can merge from develop into your feature branch and it will bring it up to date. There is no special tool. Rebase is not a special thing for going from developer updating your branch. That's just another merge. Right. So branch all the things and merge all the things. (laughs) Merge all the things. The other tool I like is, and this is actually not so much like from the command line or anything else. I use it in in, uh, Sublime Text, my favorite editor. And I think all editors will have this. That You can actually go to a line and do git blame. Mm-hmm. to find out who changed that line, who made that code. Yeah. is my favorite one because then you can like really investigate the stuff and it will give you a pop-up and saying, this is a person that did this line of code. Yeah, so I think this speaks to uh, the personality of the author of the tool. It might be better to call it some like Git author history. Yeah. But yeah, fundamentally, this is where you're reading through the code and you found something that's broken something and you're like, who did this? Yeah. <laughs> that's a bit nicer. But no, it is, it's great for team-based discovery where actually you genuinely need to find out who did that change so that normally you can go and ask them why. Yeah. You know, why did you do this thing? Because it broke my thing, but I need to find out your reasoning before I just roll it back or change it. Yeah. I've used that quite a lot in, in bigger teams because you're just trying to find out why. It's not so much like blame, Yeah. even though that's the name of the game. But 
Yeah, it's get author who did this bit of thing. It's really useful. Yeah, get responsibility. Responsibility, yeah. <laughs> yeah, blame's easier to type. Yeah, I get author would be easy, easier, you know. Who authored this code? Rather, who should I blame for this? But uh, the blame tool is pretty good for that. My final tip is take some time to learn some of the more obscure bits of the Git tool. I said before that I think you can run it with five commands. So init, add, commit, push, pull, branch, merge, maybe seven, right? Of which one or two you'll only use early on. Yeah. Get to know some of the other bits. So git blame is a great example. Git stash is one of my absolute favorites. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Because that saved my bacon so many times. <laughs> to, to tell the audience what it is. And effectively, you've got unstaged changes or untracked changes, unstaged changes, and you look down and you realize, oh, pants, I'm on the wrong branch. I didn't start my feature branch or whatever. I'm working on develop. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fine because you can stash those changes and all of a sudden your repository is now squeaky clean again. But the cool thing about stashes is you can basically pop that stash onto the code at any point. So you can create your new feature branch and what have you, and then just pop the stash, and there are all your changes again. Yeah. Also, as just a cleanup, it's like, well, I've, I'm, I'm in a real mess here. This is all rubbish. I don't know what I was thinking. Git stash, bang, you're back to the state of the previous commit. But you haven't lost those changes. That's the key thing. It's not like yeah. deleting those files or rolling back. Or They're just there, safe in a little temporary container. Exactly. That's I, I love that. I, I do that all the time. I mean, because, you know, as, as much as with Gitflow that you're changing and creating a new feature branch, right? You get all excited about the new feature. You start typing away, and next thing you know, you're like, oh, crap. I mean, in fact, the wrong branch totally, Yep. you know? So you go and create your new feature branch with your tail between your legs, and then you can just, you know, pop your stash open and sprinkle it onto your new branch. And there's a whole ton of really, really kind of left field Git commands that you, some of them, even I'm, you know, scanning through a list before we started recording this, and some of them I'd never heard of. So basically spend a bit of time and read around the, the man pages, read around articles on power Git usage. You may not use all of them, but it will probably teach you a lot more about how to handle certain situations that come up every so often. So you're saying RTFM? Yeah, basically. <laughs> so I've got one last tip, which is tags are your friends. So like in Git, you can have like different versions and commits, but you can also tag a certain release. Mm -hmm. So in the master, for example, one of the things that we do, we do it kind of automatically, but is that when you release something, it then immediately tags that commit as like what's in production. And the nice thing that tags are very, very cheap and very movable as well. So you can actually move that tag along if you need to. So you can version it. You say this is version whatever, but version whatever doesn't mean much. You could put a date and you can also put another tag that says this is live. And you can keep on moving the live tag to different commit versions to whenever stuff was committed. Because, you know, even if you have a master and you say, well, this is what's meant to be on the live site, there are still some delays between testing and between like the rollout to servers in the real world. I know in that in our beautiful CI world, we've got this idea of, you know, the moment you've checked something in is automatically tested and deployed, but there are delays. So it's nice to see when you're going to do a hot fix. It's not just from the master branch, it's not from the head of the master branch, but you know, you know from exactly which commit it was, mm -hmm. and that's a tag. So yeah, tracking things like, you know, stable versus whatever, although technically you can use branches mm -hmm. as well, but yes, tag, a tag all the things. So what have we got? We've got branch all the things, merge all the things, read all the things, blame, blame all, all the things, things, and tag all the things. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. So we've talked like, this is up-to-date version control. What is the future of version control? Do you have any ideas on this? Um. Honestly, I think that what we're probably going to see in terms of the actual tooling is it's just going to become more integrated. Mm -hmm. We're going to see, I mean, we've already seen Git as a, a core tool at the heart of certain programming language tool chains. I don't just mean for actual development. Yep. I mean, for things like package management and all the rest of it. Yeah. Realistically, I think we're going to see this continuation of integration of version control across the board. Because it makes it so much easier for us to work with modular code. Mm -hmm. It makes it so much easier for us to work with libraries and pull these in. Also, 
there was, um, I think it was the O'Reilly podcast this week, actually, I uh, did a piece on Jenkins 2 and the idea that, you know, CI deployment configuration is becoming increasingly heavily scripted. Yeah. And the minute something's scripted, it can be versioned and it can be put into version control. Right. So I think we're going to get like a lot more of in Jenkins will be deployment pipelines as code. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they're going to be in version control. And as well, we can have infrastructure as code because we now have like stuff like Kubernetes and Docker and everything else that literally you can script. I mean, you can have definitions. So you can have, this is version one of my whole infrastructure system, you know, and uh, you could have, instead of talking about, this is my production and this is my development and this is my staging, those could literally be branches in your repository. And this is how stuff gets deployed, you know, like whole infrastructure, like servers spinning up and spinning down. The idea that potentially you can check out a file and uh, check out a project and within that project there's, you know, a spin up dot JSON file that contains references to Git repositories that contain all of the different configurations for Docker or or whatever we happen to be using. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And again, it, it's all about the fact that this stuff is increasingly codified and the minute it's codified you can version it. It's kind of fun because it's in some strange way. It's almost like we're moving away. From, there was a big thing about packaging, yeah. Um, kind of, you know, about a decade or so ago, and and you know, it, certainly in the core fusion world, I think the the concept of a war is fairly well understood. Yeah, uh, and the idea that you compile your application, and now we're going the other way. We're saying no, we don't want to package it. We just want to make sure that all the information is there, so that it can be packaged by whomever on the fly. Um, it can be built and deployed and tested and, you know, all of the unit test config is versioned. Um, so everything you need to work on this project in, in, in a good modern workflow is all in version control. And I think that's a great moment for us to stop this podcast and just reflect that how much has changed from uh, our little library of checking in and checking out code and asking permission to actually be able to change this little folder to distributed to whole pipelines to uh, Git. Yeah, it's uh, it's a good time to be a dev. Yes. I mean, one of the things that, that does pop to mind is that there was a movement of making GUIs for everything, and now we've really moved away. Like, I remember before I started doing IIS stuff, it was really hard to do... I think it's O'Reilly's website was like the GUI for it. It was like really fairly complicated. And then IS came along and it was like, oh my God, this is so much easier. And now that's gone the other way. It's like, oh my God, Apache or Nginx is so much easier because I can just script this stuff. Yeah. You know, I don't have to be clicking this button, this tick box. I have a list, you know, have a checklist of like going live and saying, you know, this is how we do stuff. We can now just script that once, test it, run it, test it, and it tests it again. Yeah, we're kind of going off slightly off-piste here, but and you see the same thing in the Windows world, which was traditionally very GUI-heavy, and you know, you'd write batch files or you'd write applications with the introduction of PowerShell. They're exposing way more of their stuff in scriptable, interfaceable ways so that we can code it. And I think a lot of that points to an increasing understanding that the more we can have this stuff codified, the more flexibility we get in terms of code generation, in terms of you know building DSLs around it, but also simple things like keeping it versioned. Yeah. How do you version control an IIS config? I think there's a way to it. I think that... that, that <laughs> it was kind of rhetorical, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know. But, you know it's, it's like you can't version control the clicks that you do, right? The right click of adding site and what have you. Or can you? Some form of macro recorder. No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> No, stop. So if we've missed your favorite version control system or made any glaring errors, which I'm almost certain we have, Mark is going to tell you how you can tell us we're wrong. Well, you can tweet us at localhost.fm. You can send us an email at show at localhost.fm. I am at Mark Drew on the Twitters. And I am at Rob Dudley also on the Twitters. Feedback is always, always welcome. So, yeah, if you, you know, want abuse, less so. Yeah. But, you know, it's the internet, so we, we, we can deal with it. We're grown-ups. But, yeah, if you've got anything that you think we missed or anything you'd like to correct or provide a bit more info in, or if you've got your own horror stories or reminiscing about version control days of yore, oh. yeah, let us know. And on that note, we say bye. And we'll see you next time.